Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 122 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good afternoon, Matt. Good afternoon, Mark. Just got back from a little business road trip, so we're in our comfy clothes today, and obviously your uh, your shirt came in that we were talking about the other week. It did. So um, the listeners are going to have to start watching on YouTube, I guess, to see what the <laughs> see what the, the video says. But uh, my shirt says, I'll let you say it. That's not bearish. That's not bearish. You might hear me say it a couple times in the podcast today. <laughs> All right. I can't wait to, uh, to see what you have to break out for us today. Um, before we begin, as always, just wanted to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are for the full month of October and then year to date. And the data today is from stockcharts.com. S&P 500 index uh, up 6.91% in October and up 22.61% for the year. The Dow up 5.8% in October and 17% for the year. The NASDAQ up 7.27% for the month of October and up 20.25% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 4.25% in October and up 17.06% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, X United States, up 2.88% for the month and up 9.9% for the year. Three-month T-bill yielding 0.05%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.46%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.56%. Um, moving on to... Big news headlines, current events from the past week. Uh, We're already hearing rumblings about amendments to the House proposed tax bill that came out a few months ago uh, that we discussed in greater detail a few episodes ago. So stay tuned for more info on that in the coming weeks. I know we're going to talk a little bit about that next week, Mm -hmm. and I have a couple uh, data points on that this week. Uh, the S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index, which measures nationwide home prices, came in at point, plus 0.9% for September versus a forecast of 1.5%. So uh, home prices not increasing as much as people expected. Yep, still got a nice mid-double-digit number on a trailing one-year basis. I mm-hmm. remember seeing that. Yep. Last but not least, Q3 2021 U.S. GDP was released on October 28th, and that figure came in at plus 2.0%. So if listeners remember, they expected a potential negative number. Right. Yeah. So expansion by by 2%. So that was better than the estimate. That's not bearish. (laughs) There's one. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week, there was a tweet by Jeff Levine on October 28th, and he said, looking at many broader tax increases, for example, increasing top ordinary income tax rate, increasing the long-term cap gains rate, and decreasing the estate slash gift exemption proposed by House Dems won't make it into the final bill. 
One big question remaining is how many, if any, of the more rules-based proposed changes, for example, backdoor Roth uh, changes coming down the pipe, stick around. So like we said before, it was a very small chance that that bill got or got passed in its current format, and we're already seeing major changes to it that um, that are not going to be in there. Agreed. So, um, again, we'll have more info on this next week, but just wanted to throw it out there that as of right now, doesn't look like the top ordinary income tax rate is increasing or the long-term cap gains rate is increasing at this time. That's good. Uh, next was a tweet from Andrew Thrasher on October 19th, and he said, kind of wild that four of the 11 sectors have weightings less than 3% in the S&P 500. So those four sectors are basic materials, real estate, utilities, and energy. And again, this is something that didn't really surprise me because, you know, utilities and real estate historically are, you know, safety trades and more times than not, we're in a expanding bullish environment. So that doesn't surprise me. Um, obviously, being less and less dependent on energy in our economy, that makes sense that you know, why energy is such a small weighting in the S&P 500. And then kind of the same thing with basic materials. And at least to me, it makes sense that the largest three sectors are technology, financial services, and consumer cyclical. Absolutely. And you look at the largest sector, we've talked about this before in the podcast, technology makes up about a little bit over 24%. You know, I've seen um, big picture, longer term research pieces, Mark, that are suggesting that could get upwards of, you know, 35 to 45% in the next five or six years. And it's kind of shows you where the puck is going, where the money flow is going, where the earnings growth is coming from. Right? Yeah. And it's just another one of those things that, you know, we talked about a little bit last week. It's like, just because they've grown, technology has grown to be almost a quarter of the S&P 500. It doesn't mean it can't keep going. It, it does not. So, um, so thought that that was interesting just to point out, but again, you know, a lot of these, you know, low weighting sectors have been doing really good this year, like energy, utilities, real estate has done really well in the past couple of months and obviously basic materials. Um, but, you know, that's been on a very short term basis. They've been massive underperformers relative to the market over the past decade. Oh, very so much. So you're going to see bouts of outperformance from each sector from time to time. But I think this clearly shows where, you know, the returns have been for the past 10 years. The thing that comes to mind when you were saying that, Mark, is, you know, a potential caution that, you know, I would be cautious about chasing returns just in general. And not just even specifically mentioning the ones that have the sectors that have run year to date, but in general, that that tends to be a risky proposition. Anything else you want to add to that? No, no, I agree. Just be careful, listeners, on that. Um, the next was a blog post written by Sam Rowe on October 15th, and it's called The 10 Truths About the Stock Market. So we'll see if you agree with all these. All right, I'm in. Number one is the long game is undefeated. There's nothing the stock market hasn't overcome. Over the long term, the stock market news will be good, Warren Buffett wrote in an op-ed for the New York Times during the depths of the global financial crisis. In the 20th century, the U.S. endured two world wars and other traumatic and expensive military conflicts, the Depression, a dozen or so recessions and financial panics, oil shocks, a flu epidemic, and the resignation of a disgraced president, yet the Dow rose from 66 to 11,497. 
Since that op-ed was published, the market emerged from the global financial crisis. It also overcame a U.S. credit rating downgrade and a global pandemic, among many other challenges. The Dow closed Thursday at 34,912, just 2% from its all-time highs. And I believe as of yesterday, Matt, the Dow crossed 36,000 for the first time. Uh, by the way, historically, you didn't have to wait 100 years for positive returns. Since 1926, there's never been a 20-year period where the stock market didn't generate a positive return. And I think a lot of the, this is why I like this piece so much, because a lot of this stuff we've talked about before on the podcast. So it's just nice to know that we're not the only people that think this way. I right? love it. I love it. Keep going. Um Number two is you can get smoked in the short term. Bull markets come with lots of bumps in the road. While the S&P 500 has usually generated positive annual returns, it also sees an average drawdown, uh, which is a decline from its high of 14% during those years. Bear markets are no picnic either. They can happen quickly, like the S&P's 34% drop from February 19th of 2020 to March 23rd of 2020. And they can happen painfully slow, like the 57% decline from October of 2007 to March of 2009. Investing for long-term returns means being able to stomach a lot of intermediate volatility. Number three, don't expect average. At some point in your life, you probably heard the stock market generates about 10% annual returns on average. I know, it's great. Uh, while that may be true in the long run, the market rarely delivers an average return in a given year. Number four, stocks offer asymmetric upside. A stock can only go down by 100%, but there's no limit to how many times that value can multiply going up. Yes, we've seen some pretty bad sell-offs in the stock market, but it's gone up many-fold more. It's not guaranteed, but it's offered. From its low of 666 in 2009, the S&P 500 is up more than six times that today. So again, just more evidence that just because a stock is up 150% doesn't mean it's done. It's done, right? Uh, number five, earnings drive stock prices. Any long-term move in a stock can ultimately be explained by the underlying company's earnings, expectations for earnings, and uncertainty about those expectations for earnings. News about economic or policy moves markets to the degree that they are expected to impact earnings, aka profits. Um, are why profits are why you invest in companies. Um, however, which this goes into number six, you know, companies can go a long time without making a profit and their stock performance can still do really well, right? It's possible. Um, and that's why, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but we just have to remember that, um, you know, we bake in these future earnings expectations, right? Like the market bakes that in. So when investors are investing in a company that is not profitable yet, they're making a bet on the future that they are going to be, right? That's right. So um, again, we'll get into that here in a second. Number six is about valuations. He says valuations won't tell you much about next year. There are many valuation methods that will help you estimate whether a stock or a stock market is cheap or expensive. While valuation methods may tell you something about long-term returns, most tell you almost nothing about where prices are headed in the next 12 months. Over short periods like this, expensive things can get more expensive and cheap things can get cheaper. It's worth noting that prices can be cheap or expensive for an extended period of time. Absolutely. And again, this doesn't, you know just relate to the stock market. Think about it in terms of housing prices. Everyone's in the camp that, oh, we're going to get another, you know, 
bear market or recession in housing prices and we're going to be able to pick up real estate on the cheap. And while people might be true on that, that might not happen for another decade. And at that point, the correction still might not dip to prices today. Right. So then you end up in the same position without pulling the trigger. And then what are you going to do? That's right. Right. Number seven, there will always be something to worry about. Investing in stocks is risky, which is why returns are relatively high. Even in the most favorable market conditions, there will always be something keeping the most risk-averse folks on the sideline. Jenna, I have a feeling Mark was looking at my podcast notes for this week. I have a feeling. <laughs> the most destabilizing risks are the ones people aren't talking about. So I'm not even going to go any further on that because we mention that every week. Number nine, there's a lot of turnover in the stock market. Just as most businesses don't last forever, most stocks aren't in the market forever. The S&P 500 sees a lot of turnover, i.e. failing businesses get dropped and up-and-coming businesses get added. In fact, it's the addition of new and unexpected companies that have been driving much of the S&P 500's return over the past decade. And this is a question I've been getting a lot, Matt. You know, some of like the larger names that make up a majority of the S&P 500. So think of like the FANG names, yeah, Facebook, it, Apple, Microsoft. <laughs> Excuse me. And I'm getting questions. It's like, well, you know, the, those names can't continue at this pace. Eventually, they're going to get knocked off. And maybe that's right now. So what is your response to something like that? Because, yeah, at the end of the day, you know, back 20 years ago, no one thought that GE or IBM was going to get knocked out of the game, and they did. So people are asking the same question now about Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Tesla, all those things. So, you know, what's your response to a question like that of people thinking, hey, I'm going to get ahead of this and sell this stuff because they're going to get knocked off eventually? I think it's a great question. So my initial response, first of all, is this. If you look at the relative balance sheets of companies in the year 2000, okay, and you look at the balance sheets of, say, the top 10 or the top 15 names in the S&P by market cap, it is literally night and day. It is not apples to apples. Mm -hmm. It is not even a fair fight. It is taking a gun to a fist fight. (laughs) These companies have so much cash on the balance sheet, they literally can create their own destiny at this point if they make smart financial decisions. Let's take Apple as an example. Not a recommendation for or against the name, but when you're sitting with cash in excess of $200 billion, you could literally buy almost three FedExes right? just with your cash. Mm-hmm. The other aspect is this. With where our economy is at today and our dependence on technology, I know we've talked about this before in the podcast, We are in an environment where that is now a staple. A lot of the services that a lot of these companies in the top 15 provide are almost staples within society that in an economic downturn, you're not going to see the magnitude of pullback in revenue that you experienced, say, in the top 15 names of the S&P back two decades ago. Mm -hmm. So I think the consistency of the earnings whether we're in a good economic cycle or a bad economic cycle is a different makeup now. And so I think in my mind, that creates more consistency to earnings today than two decades ago, say in the top 15 names by market cap. That's my initial response. Now, am I naive to think that in two decades from now, that's going to be the same exact list? You and I both know it won't be the case. Mm -hmm. But I think the cycle factor or the longevity of these names 
are going to last a lot longer due to those two factors I just mentioned. Yeah. My no. opinion. No, that's great. No, thanks for shedding some more light on that because that's something that we're starting to hear a lot. Absolutely. So um, I'll turn it over to you. All right. Just taking a sip of my uh, coconut water here. Apologize. So I got three good items this week, Mark. I always got good stuff. At least I like to think I do. Maybe, maybe listeners don't agree, but I think I do. So the first one I have is individual investors return expectations above inflation. Now, this is a tweet by uh, Samantha Russell. She's uh, marketing for the firm uh, 20 over 10. And she posted this, and I, and this is on our show notes, this chart. Will you remind listeners, Mark, where they can find our show notes, please? Yeah, uh, on Twitter at Jessup Wealth or uh, Jessup Wealth Management on Facebook or LinkedIn. So, listeners, I would highly recommend you take a look at our notes this week. The first one, it shows a chart from Natixis Investment Management, okay? What they've done is they are showing individual investors their return expectation mark above inflation. They show it for the calendar years of 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and this year of 21, okay? So this is just like a, from like a survey of if people. From a survey. What they think the market's gonna do. What their expectation of returns <clears throat> are for their portfolio or the markets above inflation. Okay. Okay. In 14, the average was 8.9%. Okay, 15, it went up to 9.7. 2016, they expected 9.5 above inflation. 17, 9.9. 18, 10.4. 19, 10.7. You ready for 21? 13% expectation above inflation. Okay, now, Mark, as I read these data points, I'm going to let you respond first. Just What's your thoughts when you see this? Well, obviously, you know, except one of those years, expectations have been increasing. And I don't think that's uncommon or, you know, irrational, just given the market environment we've been in for the last decade. So, um, but, you know, as more and more of the public expect their returns to be higher and higher, I'm one to go against the grain and say, you know, maybe expectations need to be lowered a little bit for the future. Um, but since we have such like recency bias as a population, you know, as markets continue to do better and have stronger and stronger years like 2020 and 2021 so far, expectations are going to be a lot higher and the bar is going to be set a lot higher, especially yeah. for those that are newer to markets and they come in, you know, in the second half of 2020 and all they know is, you know, 20% per year. And they think that that's normal. Great point. They weren't investing through say the COVID sell off of February and March of 20, the fourth quarter correction in 18, right? You know, they weren't experiencing what that's like. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the thing that kind of comes to mind to me when I see this is a concern that investors are either chasing returns or they're taking on risk they don't fully understand. Mm -hmm. When I see this, this is what comes to mind, is that the market returns provide a false sense of security that kind of blanket the true view of what risk is on the market on a short-term basis. Mm -hmm. So I guess you and I are talking in the same language. I'm just saying it a different way. Yeah, yeah, and it's, you know, it, 
it's people are going to be disappointed if they keep expect you know if this trend continues and expectations keep rising then i think people are going to be very disappointed at the end of the day agreed i just thought it was interesting to kind of bring up i just continually increasing except that one year like you verbally mentioned mark was quite interesting yeah in 2016 that was like right around the whole china corruption was going on so that kind of makes sense but yeah every year since then it's been higher and higher well, uh, my next uh, piece is a tweet by Michael Backnick on October 28th, and he posted a chart, and it dates back to March of 09, so the market bottom from the 07-09 correction, and the title of this chart is Reasons to Sell, and then what it shows is the S&P 500 total return since 09, and the data source on the chart is uh, Y Charts and Ritholtz Wealth Management, okay? Mm-hmm. Now... Um, what is done is um, key pivotal things that were the focus of the market, negative headline focus of the market, is illustrated on this chart. Now, I'm going to verbally discuss it, but Mark, it does not do it justice. This is a great chart. I highly recommend our listeners check out the show notes Mm -hmm. because I want to go back to what I said in last week's podcast, and I know I've been saying this for years in the podcast. You want to see the market climb a wall of worry. You want to see that as an investor. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to highlight some key events that occurred in the past, a little bit over 10 years of reasons that spooked people to abandon their longer term plan because they were fearful on a short-term basis. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to yell out a couple, okay? So we had a period back on um, in September of 2011. In a very short time period, U.S. stocks fell 20%. Uh, back in June of 2010, we had a flash crash. I remember sitting at my desk. I remember seeing Procter & Gamble literally flash crash over 10% in a couple of minutes. And by the time I wanted to put some orders in for clients, it had already corrected. Mm-hmm. But that stuff happened. That concerns people. We had a U.S. government shutdown in 13. We had the Ebola virus be an issue in 2014. We had an earnings recession in 2016. In 2015, the Dow falls 1,000 points for the first time ever. Um, I'll continue. We had Brexit in 2016. I mean, you remember the fear around Brexit? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my horrible. gosh. It was <clears throat> it, it was going to be the end all be all. <laughs> Um, in 2017, the NASDAQ 100 fell 4% from its session high. Later on, you had trade wars in 2018 when, when Trump was in office. U.S. government shutdown in 19. Um, you know, you had, let's keep going here. S&P entered a bear market in the fourth quarter of 2018. People say that was going to continue. Uh, talking heads like Drunken Miller says risk reward in stocks is the worst he's ever seen in 2020. What's happened since then? Um, you know, fears about the contested election uh, in the last presidential election, a COVID supply shortages. I can go on and on. There's about maybe, what do you think? 30 data points on this chart? Yeah. What's the message, Mark? Just don't fight the market. Don't fight it. You and know? don't let short term headlines affect your longer term game plan. Yeah. And, and, and I think the other thing is to just don't watch the news. <laughs> You know, it's not healthy. like if you so if you were if you were someone that, you know, was cut off from social media, didn't watch the news, you know, I think people would be a lot happier. 
you know, and Most they just people cont- I talk to that, 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 that consume less general news are happier people. Right. In my opinion. And, and you'd be more successful financially because you're just constantly contributing to your accounts the way you should be, you know, knowing that based on history, that if you give the market time, it's going to go up over time. And it's, I personally think it's not worth people's time to stress about this stuff. Right. Um, you know, over this period of, like you said, a little more than a decade, you know, the biggest thing that comes to me is, you know, elections and changing of the guard when it comes to a new Republican president or a new Democrat president. Everyone thinks the next president is going to wreck the U.S. economy. That's been the conversation for the last four elections. And, and it'll it just hap- has happen again in a couple happened. of years. We have the next so I just election. I don't understand people's psyche when they still continue to think like that. And I know it's just, you know, their politics getting in the way of their investing, but you're going to be a lot less successful if you let that stuff creep into your head and force you to make emotional decisions based on this. So well said, Mark, again, I I personally think that, you know, people should go and check out this chart because it really does put things in perspective for people rather than us just, you know, spewing our thoughts on this. I think this would be really helpful for people to go check out. That's great. And the last point I want to make for listeners is this, the two guiding emotions that the media plays with when it comes to people's investments is fear and greed. Those are the two emotions that they that they prey on either way. And if you look at a lot of the articles, they're either one or the other. That is why a lot of financial news outlets, instead of talking about percentage moves, they use point moves. Why? It, it's 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 a bigger uh, deal. It's more sexy. Instead of saying the Dow moved up one percent, they're saying the Dow moved X amount of points in relation to what? Mm-hmm. So just. I want to throw that out there. Fear yeah, and greed, spe- two emotions they prey on. Yeah, especially for people who aren't even close to retirement. Doesn't matter. It's like the question has to become, do you need this money over the next year or even two years or even three years? Especially if it's people, in your retirement account. Right. People aren't even eligible to pull that money out until they're 59 and a half unless they want to get whacked with an extra 10% penalty on top of ordinary income taxes. Yeah. So it's like, if you don't need this money right now, don't worry about it. I love it. Just let it happen. Love it. All right, last, last point I have, uh, last uh, uh, piece of research. An interesting stat, Mark, about S&P 500 revenues generated outside the U.S., okay? Now, this is a tweet by FactSet, a big research firm, on October 25th, and it literally shows the S&P 500 in a pie chart, aggregate geographic revenue exposure, okay? And it shows that of the S&P 500, of revenues are generated outside the United States. 60% is generated in the United States. So here's two things when I saw this stat that I wanted to share with you and the listeners first. One, it was higher than I anticipated. I thought the number would be around 30, 35% personally. Yeah, I I did too. I didn't think it was going to be this close. So it came in at 40. Now, I want to address something called modern portfolio theory, okay? In summary, this is a theory that states one should allocate to all areas of the market, whether they like them or not. An example, bonds have been in the bull market for over a decade. Rates are near zero. Is this a good time to load up on long-term treasuries? Modern portfolio theory doesn't care, and it's going to do it. Or if XYZ asset class, such as large cap value or large cap growth mark, has been underperforming, it will still allocate to that sector. Why do firms do this? I have an opinion about this. My opinion is it's all CYA. It's all cover their behinds. In my opinion, 
I personally believe modern portfolio theory is lazy and a cover. My two cents. Okay, you might think differently. So Mark, having said that, I have a question for you. If someone looks at a portfolio allocation that shows no pure, and I'm doing the air, co air quotes listeners, international mutual funds, ETFs, or internationally domiciled companies, a lot of financial advisors would say, well, that's not properly diversified. When pointing out this stat, do you think it starts to change the narrative? Um, <clears throat> no, I don't. Um, I think it's one of those things, again, that you got to follow, you know, the relative strength of certain areas in the market, right? Because if you put U.S. stocks versus international stocks over the past three, five, eight, 10, 12 years, you know, you're missing out on a lot of juice in terms of performance if you've been heavily overweight in international stocks, right? True. And it's the same thing with the returns year to date you mentioned earlier. Right. And it's the same thing with with sectors. You know, if you've not had technology in your portfolio because you were scarred from the early 2000s, you've missed up out on a lot of upside. The or last if you're, two decades. If you're a pure you know, value person and you've missed up on a lot of up, upside the past, you know, five years. Right. So, <clears throat> no, I don't think you have to have international exposure in your portfolio to be properly diversified. And the other thing that doesn't really get talked about is, you know, currency, right? So, you know, the strength of the dollar, if it's weaker, if it's stronger, that plays into the returns you're getting from your international exposure. So I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but to directly answer your question, no, I don't think it means that you are not diversified if you do not have international exposure. I, I would agree with that statement. And, you know, I think the currency kind of topic is at times it makes it, it could make people think that you have to get both of those right. You have to get the international uh, country that you have exposure to right and get their underlying currency right. And then that sometimes makes the trade a lot more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, one can argue that, you know, the S&P 500 is diversified or it isn't diversified. But what it is good at doing is elevating the sectors that have performed the best. It does. Right? It does. It does do that. You yeah. know, because if you look at, like we said earlier, technology sector makes up almost a quarter of the S&P 500. That's because the, the technology sector has performed really well. Yeah, that's a good point. And I do right? have a I do have a piece I'm planning on next week's podcast that will kind of talk about that topic a little bit more. And so I, I think that'll be fruitful for the listeners. Yeah. And my just two cents here is just follow the strength. You know, don't don't bottom feed. Don't try to pick a bottom because you catch could, a falling knife. Right. You could have tried to do that in international five years ago and again, gotten smoked. I think I think another way to say it is more often than not, people attempting to catch falling knives. Definitely. You know, they get stabbed. Yeah, for sure. Maybe you should put that on the back of your shirt. Ooh, maybe that's my that's my next one. But <laughs> we both look at Jenna simultaneously. <laughs> you get stabbed trying to fa catch falling knives. All right. Like back that. to you, my friend. Um, okay. So moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. Um, I apologize again, if I sound like a broken record, because I like to talk about HSAs here so much. Um, but I truly believe it's one of the best hacks for beefing up your retirement savings. And I think it's a good time to talk about this since most employees 
are about to embark on open enrollment for their company benefits uh, for the 2022 very timely calendar year. Very okay. timely. Um, so this article was written by uh, Christine Benz in Morningstar on September 29th, and she said, can you save too much in a health savings account? She says, most assets and HSAs aren't invested in the market, but rather are parked in a savings account to cover out-of-pocket healthcare expenses. But assets and HSAs that are invested in long-term securities have grown rapidly too. Those HSA investors are no doubt attracted to the account's tax benefits, the ability to make pre-tax contributions, enjoy tax-free compounding, and take tax-free withdrawals to, play for, to pay for qualified healthcare expenses. In fact, based on the tax merits alone, HSAs are more attractive than other retirement savings vehicles like IRAs and 401ks. But the question is, can you overdo your HSA contributions, meaning putting more money in the account than you're likely to spend on healthcare costs? The short answer is that it's highly unlikely, largely because HSAs have generous features around withdrawals. In a worst case scenario where your HSA account balance exceeds your expected healthcare costs, you have two key ways to get your money out sooner without negating the tax benefits of an HSA. And for those that don't know, you can invest your HSA. So, you know, go to whoever holds your, you know, your HSA, whether it's, you know, at a credit union or I know HSA bank, I think is a big one. There are options to invest all or a portion of your HSA. So it almost works as like a third retirement account in addition to your employer sponsored plan and your IRAs that you have. So mm -hmm. definitely look into that if you haven't already. Yeah. Um, the first escape hatch, Christine says, is a paper trail. If you're using your HSA as an investment vehicle, a cardinal principle is that it's better to use non-HSA assets to cover healthcare expenses. After all, taxable assets don't enjoy the same tax benefits that assets sitting inside an HSA do. So if you have the wherewithal to use taxable assets to cover your healthcare costs instead, that lets the assets in the HSA enjoy the tax advantage growth. Okay. The good news is that even if you're pursuing this strategy, you're not locked into it. If you paid out of pocket for healthcare expenses in previous years, you can still make a tax-free withdrawal later on for non-healthcare expenses, provided that you hung on to receipts for the earlier healthcare costs. An unlimited amount of time can elapse between when you actually incurred the healthcare costs and when you reimburse yourself. That's a big deal. So think about getting tax-free withdrawals in retirement. Right. So, but the key is you have to have the receipts to prove it. Got to have the paper trail. Exactly. To use this as a simple example, let's say a person paid $5,000 out of her taxable non-HSA account to cover healthcare expenses incurred at the end of 2020. Throughout 2021, she racked up the maximum family contribution of $7,200 in her HSA, letting the money build up rather than spending from it. If she needed a new roof in December of 2021, she could pull $5,000 from her HSA to steer toward that expense and the withdrawal would be tax-free, provided she could document the 2020 out-of-pocket healthcare costs. Hmm. That's not ideal, of course, because she's better off leaving it you know, staying in the HSA to grow, but tax-free HSA withdrawals beats other forms of emergency funding, such as credit cards, home equity lines of credit, or 401k loans. Oh, absolutely. The key to preserving their escape hatch, as noted above, is to maintain documentation of healthcare expenses. It's also worth noting that the HSA participant must have established the HSA and made the contribution before she incurred the healthcare cost. 
So the healthcare or the, excuse me, the HSA has to be opened and funded and any receipt beyond that point can qualify for what we were just talking about. That is an important point. Right. That's a really important point. Um, escape patch number two, I won't, you know, say verbatim what Christine was saying, but withdraws after age 65, there is no penalty for taking money out after age 65 if you use the money for non-healthcare expenses. So it's, it's kind of like a traditional IRA withdrawal. Exactly. So there's no difference. There's no difference. So again, it's just another way to, you know, sock away, you know, money pre-tax. money pre-tax that, you know, you can use for retirement down the road. So, you know, when people come to me and they're like, hey, should I choose the, you know, the healthcare option through my employee or my employer that, you know, my employer will contribute X amount per month to my HSA or one with a lower deductible, you know, if it's a young, healthy person, I usually say, go with the one that's, they're almost going to max out your HSA. Absolutely. Because, you know, if you're young and healthy, don't have any underlying, you know, health concerns at this point. Take the cash on the HSA. Takes the cash on the HSA. Love that. Um, and the last part is that Christine mentions is not to leave it behind. So, uh, even as HSAs allow for withdrawals for non-healthcare expenses under certain conditions, it's also important to spend through HSA assets in retirement. That's because inherited HSAs don't have the same tax flexibility that IRAs do. If a spouse is the beneficiary of an HSA, he or she can maintain the account as the HSA and continue to take advantage of those generous tax benefits. On the other hand, if someone other than the spouse is the beneficiary of the HSA, the HSA and its tax benefits cease to exist upon the death of the original HSA owner. Mm, all taxable too, I bet. Yep. That means inherited amount is fully taxable to the beneficiary. Given those drawbacks, that suggests that HSA owners with a non-spouse beneficiary prioritize HSA withdrawals. I have a question. You might not know the answer. Okay. Question is, let's say um, owner dies, spouse of the primary beneficiary is say uh, a child can they um withdraw that over multiple years like a traditional ira or is it taxable all in one year you think uh to my knowledge it's taxable all in one year so i mean if you got a chunk of change in there that could really throw that benny into a high tax bracket right it's not like an ira where the the benny that's a non-spouse has 10 years to take it out it's mm. like you know beneficiary dies yeah, i think and you're right too i think too. that's something that should be noted right so from an estate um, planning standpoint, right, I know you don't just, want that to you don't want six figures to be taxable all in one year. Right. It has betting. many of the same functions as, say, an IRA. But that's one of them that I think people have to be conscious of. Absolutely. So I'm glad you brought this up. Good. Good for open enrollment period time. Yeah. So and also, if anyone has any other open enrollment questions, we'd be happy to talk about that because, you know, now's the time to make your elections for 2022 and you only have a certain amount of time to do that. So make sure that you are in contact with your employer to make sure, you know, you're within that window to make sure you're not missing your elections for 2022. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, no, we haven't had any listener questions in a while. Listeners, that send us up. those questions. Um, but anything else before you want to wrap up for the week? I think there's gonna be a lot of focus Friday morning on the October jobs number. I think there's gonna be a lot of focus on that. And so that's something I'm looking forward to seeing. I think we're going to have a relatively good headline number. Uh, but no, that's it, sir. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there for the week. And uh, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in to episode 122. And we'll be back with you next week for 123.
Take care, listeners. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.